at the side of the city. The unaware crowd grew in size as he got closer and closer. There were people from, people from all walks of life. There were skeptics, and there were those with faith like a mustard seed that can move mountains. There were people who had cold hearts next to those with hearts on fire for the Lord. There was men, women, and children, sick, healthy, young, old, tall, short, skinny, and fat. They were all there to see the one they called the Messiah. Is he the king we've all been waiting and hoping for? Grab your outlines. We're going to dive in today. If you would set your watches, turn the hourglass over. The countdown has begun. This is the final seven days of an extraordinary life that would reach a mere 33 years. Jesus is in a small town known as Bethany. He has just left the home of a man named Simon who he had healed from leprosy. Also at this dinner party was a man named Lazarus who he had healed and raised from, from the dead. The word on the street is that Jesus is a wanted man in Jerusalem. There's a bounty on his head. There's a, a plan um, to, to grab him and to destroy him, to destroy his work and ministry reputation. Jesus knew that what would happen if he were to go into Jerusalem, but instead of running in the opposite direction, Jesus begins his march, walking back down the road into the heart of the city. The crowds are following him. The numbers in thousands, word spread that Jesus is on his way. People begin to bring the lame and the sick and the blind to Jesus. And all along the road, people begin to try to grab Jesus' attention in hopes that he would heal them. The noise of the cheers, the, the people calling out to Jesus is overwhelming. People shoving through the crowds to get close, to, to get a glimpse, to even touch this healer. Matthew twenty thirty, it says, Two blind men were sitting by the roadside when they heard that Jesus was going by, and they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. They can't see Him, but in desperation they cry out for Him, and they clearly identified Him, Son of David. David was not just a king, he was the king in Jewish history. And what they were saying is that, Jesus, you are from his bloodline. You are the heir to his throne. See, this is the first of many statements that would declare Jesus as king throughout these next seven days. Many who would believe it and many who would try to uh, hold him to it and then many who would then eventually crucify him because he claimed to be king. And unlike kings before him who lived in fancy palaces, who had servants all around at their beck and call, who ruled with an iron fist, Jesus stops along the road, and this is what the text says. Jesus had compassion on these two men. He touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight, and they followed him. It's just what people did when they came in contact with Jesus. Jesus would do something in their lives, and then they would follow him. In your notes, Jesus came in humbly. After seeing another miracle, the people were ready to put Jesus on their shoulders, to march him into the Jerusalem, to, to, to make him uh, the, the new king, to overthrow the Roman government. But Jesus has a different plan. He tells his disciples in Luke 19, 30 and 31, it says, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, just tell them that the Lord needs it. For those acutely aware of the Old Testament, they might have understood, but most had no idea. You see, 500 years before this, a man named Zechariah would declare this prophecy about this Messiah who was to come. The king of the Jews, the ones that they were waiting for, would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey. Riding on a donkey's colt. I'm just going to say this over and over again throughout this series. Prophecy fulfilled. Yet it seems like a contradiction because what king would come in on a donkey during or even after a war? Kings in ancient history always rode the finest horses as a sign of prestige and power and authority. Ancient documents would declare that a king would only ride in on a donkey if they had been uh, destroyed or their city had been taken over uh, or, or just to go into another city, basically just saying, I come in peace. Now, couple that with the Jewish view that their king would come and restore uh, their people through military power and might. You already know that Jesus has a different agenda. He's not planning on picking a fight, building an army, or starting a war. He isn't about becoming an earthly king. It's not about an earthly kingdom. It's about establishing his eternal kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. His battle is a spiritual one. And the only way it can be accomplished is if he, the king, lays down his life and surrenders. It's not about defeating the Romans. Jesus is going to defeat our, our two greatest enemies, sin and death. The story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem is known as the triumphal entry. If you didn't grow up in church, this is kind of what this is about. This is what we're going to talk about today. This is the Sunday prior to the Friday where Jesus will be crucified, and then, and then three days later on that Sunday morning, he will resurrect from the grave. It's an annual Passover festival where Jews from all over the Roman world would, would all bring, come together for this week, week-long festival to remember what God did uh, for the Jews in freeing them from the oppression of the Egyptians. You will see this gospel uh, accounts in, in these areas, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John chapter 12. You have, you have to use all four of these gospel accounts to get a clear picture of what this looks like and what it is. That's why we studied it this week during our 2020. As Jesus climbs up on this donkey, the people begin to get worked up into a frenzy because this is the moment many of them who understood have all been waiting for. You see, there are all these parades and big moments and celebration representing victory and happiness and, 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 and celebration. If you've ever been to Disney World or Disneyland, you know at the end of the night in Magic Kingdom, they have this thing called the Main Street Electric Parade. Anybody ever been there, seen that? You know what I'm talking about? It's this magical parade that happens. There's music, there's dancing, there's Disney characters. It's an amazing thing. Another celebration that we experience very often is, is New Year's Eve. You know, all these people come from all over the place, all all moving to this idea of New York City and they stand in this area that's fenced in for 12 hours or more all to celebrate a brand new year. They come just to celebrate time. Early this month, people flocked to, to New Orleans to celebrate Mardi Gras or Fat Tuesday and had to be careful Googling that one. All right, so don't Google that. All right, just be careful because there's a lot of things in there. And then last week in Denver, Colorado, as, as Dan alluded to, that there was over a million people who gathered in the city to celebrate a Super Bowl victory. Make no mistake, the Jews in this moment are beginning to understand the significance of what they're seeing. Even they don't understand all the pieces. The triumphal entry involves a humble king on a journey to bring freedom to all mankind, to all people. This wave that would happen 2,000 years ago in that week on that Sunday would eventually ripple its way onto our shores today. In your notes, don't miss this. Don't miss the magnitude of the moment. Understand that the magnitude, the very beginning of these 168 hours of this Passion Week, Jesus' final week of his earthly ministry, for 4,000 years, their ancestors had longed to see this day, and now it's finally happening in their lifetime. The prophets of old 
The Old Testament spoke about this coming Messiah, and he's finally here in flesh and blood. Jesus is probably less than a mile outside the city walls and gets word that he's heading to Jerusalem, that he's on his way, and it's Passover again. And Jerusalem, who, according to the Roman historian Tacticus, was a city that was a population of around 600,000 people, but during this time, it would swell to over 2.5 million people. And friends, this is no ordinary city. For every account of the ancient world, hands down, this was considered one of the most beautiful cities on the planet. The name Jerusalem is taken from two Hebrew words, the word Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, which was a name for God, which meant provider. And then also the word Shalom, which was a word that they used often, almost a greeting that meant peace. Jerusalem, the city of peace, God's peace. By the end of that week, it would be anything but that. Jerusalem was nestled 2,500 feet above three different valleys and actually set on top of four different hills. Its buildings were built of solid marble, overlaid in gold, and to say that the city was clean would have been an understatement. And in the city, the center of the city would have been its crown jewel, its pride and joy, the temple. The temple sat on a piece of property about 1,000 feet by 1,000 feet and was elevated so that everybody could see its radiance. King Solomon used 153,000 men to build this thing. Its foundation was built of marble stone cord nearby. Some of the stones were 67 feet square and were over 9 feet in height, weighing in excess of 200 tons apiece. And it wasn't uncommon for them to use even gold as mortar. Long porches stretched the length of these several sides with pillars that were 37 feet tall, cut from single stones. One porch had over 160 pillars, each weighing over 100 tons apiece. The gates leading to the temple were made of solid bronze and took over 20 men just to open them every morning. And in the inner court was the actual temple and inside it, it was a room that overlaid, get this, 23 tons of gold. They actually used nails made of solid gold that weighed in excess of 20 ounces apiece. You get the picture. These craftsmen did their very best. They spared no expense in building the temple. Jesus is about to flip the script on on thousands of years of Judaism. No more sacrificial system. No more bring your animal and and sacrifice it for, for the year of your sin and for the sins of your family. No, no, no. There was going to be one sacrifice, once and for all. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who would lay down His life, who would become our atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then the physical temple... The, the, the place where everyone would go to, to, to gather, to, to meet with God, to connect with God. All of a sudden, there will be no more. Jesus is now here and he's everywhere. And his whole point is and purpose is to reside in the souls of his people. That all of a sudden, no longer a building that would be a temple, but our, our bodies would be the temple where God lives and resides. Sin will finally be conquered, and not because of keeping the law or keeping commands or keeping rules, but because of this grace-infused Father that sent His Son to settle sin, all of our sin, once and for all. In your notes, the crowds began to celebrate. Does anyone remember this, this guy named Chelsea Sullenberger? Do you remember this name? Maybe it rings a bell, maybe not. But he's the U.S. Airway veteran captain who successfully landed Flight 1450, 1540 in the Hudson River on January 15, 2012. I mean, he would do something that day that he's never done in all of his experience, which is to land a plane that was going down in a river. He saved all 155 passengers. And I've been on some rough plane rides, but none like this. Can you even imagine what that must have been like for those people? 
And what he did was unbelievable, and the reception was incredible. He did all the circus. He went to all the, the morning talk shows. He did Letterman and Leno and Oprah and Larry King. And seeing all these passengers express their gratitude for his courage and skill was amazing. He became a hero, and America praised him for it. And as the people gathered to see Jesus walking toward the city of Jerusalem, Jesus would, would come around the Mount of Olives, and historians say that the gold on the temple in this afternoon would be a reflector from the sun that was almost blinding for people. Matthew writes this in Matthew 21, 8 through 9. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest of heavens. Can you envision it? This is way more than a paraded amusement park or when our favorite team wins a, wins a championship. The Word became flesh. The Messiah that they've been talking about for thousands of years is here. Prophecies are being fulfilled before their very eyes. And redemption is finally close. And the city comes into view. People remove their coats and they lay them on the road like this incredibly long red carpet for the, this colt, this donkey to, to, to walk on. They cut these palm branches everywhere and they begin to wave them. And, and that was kind of a representative of what we would look at as our flag today, just, just a pride. The psalmist prophesied this in Psalm 118, 25 and 26. Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Blessed the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Prophecy fulfilled. And Matthew tells us that as Jesus passed through the city gates, into the city, it says this, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The word stirred there in the Greek is the word that's used after an earthquake. Luke 19.37 says, when, when he came near the place where the road goes down into the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You see, they had seen Jesus teach with authority. They'd seen the miracles that he had done. Healing a man who could never walk, healing a, a, a woman who had an issue of blood, bringing the dead back to life, going to people's homes and, and doing these things. They had seen the miracles, seen people who were demon-possessed, and Jesus just in a word saying, hey, that's gone, no more. They'd seen these things. They saw Jesus' life. They saw the way they interacted with people, the way that he loved people, regardless of who they were, what they were like, whether they were religious or irreligious, whether they were close to God or, or far from God. They had seen his life, and the whole city was in joyful pandemonium, with exception to a few. In your notes, Jesus had enemies. He had enemies. Let me ask you a question. You ever had an enemy? Maybe when you were a kid in school growing up and some kid that just would always bother you or bug you or try to bully you. you know, maybe for you, you've got enemies even today. People that pay an awful lot of attention to everything that you do or everything that you say. They're consumed or fixated with, with what you're doing. They just wait to pounce. They wait to catch you in something and then they jump after you. And maybe for you, it was an ex-spouse or a family member or a jealous friend or, or a co-worker. Throughout the, 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 the three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry, he had many, many enemies. There were several groups called the religious right 
and they were Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law that looked at Jesus as public enemy number one. And these religious sects were consumed with tradition and religion and, and, and rules and legalism, and they saw Jesus as his threat. They would see the crowds gather as Jesus would teach with authority, and they saw the miracles. They knew that Jesus was different. They just didn't know that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah that was to come. They saw Jesus who had compassion on people, who extended grace. He spent time with people that were far from God instead of judging and condemning them. Jesus' life was contagious, and the crowds would always, always gather. And this time, they're on the scene, and they're watching all this pandemonium, all these people singing and, 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 and praising God and saying all these things, and, and they, they, they begin to, to look at Jesus, and they, they, they challenge him. They say this in Luke 19, 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Okay? Notice what they call him. They don't call him Lord. They don't call him God. They don't call him King. They call him Teacher. They demanded that that Jesus tell all of these people to stop what they're doing. They thought that what they were doing was sacrilegious or even blasphemous. They're saying, shut it down. Get it under control. Shut them up. And Jesus responds with this in Luke 19.40. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. There's so much in that statement. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you think I'm just a teacher? I'm king. I am who you think I am. And even though you're afraid of me, God put a calling on my life to come. And I am, I am God. I am, I am God's son, and I'm, I've come on a rescue mission. Jesus is declaring his divinity. He also is declaring that, you know what, creation declares the glory of God. Creation is the handiwork of God. I think that Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you get these people to get quiet, here's the deal. The rocks are going to cry out. They're going to shout out and praise and admiration for who I am. And then this takes a turn. In your notes, Jesus is moved emotionally. He's moved emotionally, and it happens multiple times throughout the Scripture. As as this celebration reaches this fever pitch, Jesus begins to weep as he sees the city. Luke 19, 41 through 42, as he approaches Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be Jesus? To get this mixed review of people who some understand it completely, some are not even sure, and some just believe that he's some crazy nut job that's out to, to destroy the government, to out destroy Judaism in that day. And the fact is, he's, just, he's weeping over the heart and, and the pain of people. The name of the city has peace as part of its meaning but people didn't get it at all. They missed it. The city of peace was blinded to the Prince of Peace. It's not that Jesus wasn't open about his ministry. He was. It's not that the Old Testament didn't speak about this Messiah who was to come and the things that he would do and say and the miracles that he performed because they did. It's just that many people missed it. If people would have known what was truly happening, what was really going on, they would have recognized it for what it was, they would have found peace. But the Jewish leaders had rejected Messiah. They refused God's offer of salvation as they were visited by God himself. They were blind. And the nation would also suffer. 
And I don't know how about you, but I, I, I wonder how many times we just look around in our world and we are broken about the things that are going on in our crazy world that we live in. And we see things that break our hearts and we wonder how people could become so blinded. You know? I mean, when will it end? Topless cafes and strip clubs and sex trades and Ashley Madison and Grinder and pornography that willingly destroys people and marriages and families forever. Gun violence and school shootings and domestic terrorism and ISIS and, and abortion and the level of children who've been abandoned is heartbreaking. Three people in Louisiana accused of kidnapping and swapping two children for $175 and a bird, a cockatoo. Really? A three-year-old girl is beaten by her, to death by her parents. A couple of weeks ago, a 20-year-old man walked into an elderly home where he shot and decapitated his grandparents. Israel and Palestine fighting over a few square miles of land daily. They, they continue to launch rockets into schools and suicide bombers blowing up innocent people. The blindness of our world to truth and to who God is and what Jesus came to do for us is staggering. It breaks your heart. It makes us go, what in the world? Why? Why are we in this place? Brokenness that I wish our world could know about a king who came to move in, to rescue, and reconnect us back to God, regardless of what we've done, where we've been, or how many times we've done it. Jesus then gets off this donkey, and he walks through the temple courts. And during the Passover, people had to purchase a dove or an animal or some lamb to, to sacrifice. And they would purchase them outside the city gates for a cheaper price. And, and, and when those supplies ran out, they had to purchase them inside the city gates and merchants. And even in the temple where the prices would be jacked up. And, and where people couldn't, most people couldn't even afford to, to purchase an animal to sacrifice. See, there was personal gain based out of a holiday people whose intentions were pure. And Jesus, in righteous anger, goes into the temple and goes after those who are taking advantage of the poor. He'd had enough, and Jesus goes in and he cleans house, voices raised, turning over the merchant tables, driving everyone out. Everyone in that temple that day knew that the king had come. And here's my question for us today. I wonder if we daily live with the awareness that the king has come. I wonder because so many of us struggle to, to grab God's word and open it up and read it for themselves, to, to connect with him daily, to ask God for his heart, for his will, for his plans, for our lives. Many that are apathetic, they love Jesus, but they're apathetic and they aren't serving or they aren't committed or they don't give or they, they don't live on mission. The king has come. He's come. I wonder because I watch so many Christ followers refuse to reach out and love and invest and care for those who are far from God, to meet their needs and to invite them to church so that they can meet Jesus. The King has come. I wonder because I hear all the time about Christians who are blowing up their marriages or sleeping around or gossiping or backbiting or they look like the world or they're underwhelmed by the, 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 the love and the sacrifice and the mission of Jesus. The King has come. Churches all over the planet that are missing the mission, that are struggling financially, are missing the opportunity to partner with Christ to help the world come in contact with God's love and His grace. The King has come. Gateway. That's why we're called to be different. 
That's why we're called to be set apart. The church stands at this very important crossroads in all of history. Not just our church, but the church in a time where it's difficult to be a Christ follower, where it's difficult to, to, to live out truth, where it's difficult to live for your faith. God's calling us to do that. He, he wants all of us to rise up and be the people that he longs for us to be. He needs everyone in. We need everyone engaged in ministry because the king has come. We need to use our gifts. We need to, to show our ownership. We need, we need to, to use our gifts and our time and our talents to help people take the next step so that our church can take the next step that God's calling us to take. We need everyone who calls Gateway Home and Jesus Lord and Savior to be in Christ and in community and on, on mission. God's telling us that the King has come. The King has come and He promises that He's going to come back one day and may we be found faithful for the sacrifice of his son. I'm going to close today with three distinct responses to Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. The first group of people were those who folded their arms and went, I don't believe. I don't believe it. I know you say all these things. I know he supposedly he's done all these things. I know he's so, supposedly taught about all these things, but I don't believe it. I still don't believe. And if that's you today, I want to encourage you to come back for the next five weeks as we journey for, through these 168 hours to, to watch this man, to see what Jesus did, to see what he was willing to do for you and for me and for every person on the planet. See, there's no greater invest, investigation that you could make than to investigate the claims of Jesus. Second group of people were those who, who, who just weren't sure. They said, I want to believe. You're coming to a place where you're beginning to see that Jesus is more than some teacher, but that he's actually maybe something else, but, but it's, it's risky. What does it mean? What will it mean for me? I just don't know. I want to believe. And my encouragement for you would be to keep coming and keep wrestling and keep asking questions. Talk to somebody. Talk to me. Talk to somebody that you came with today. Ask your questions. Wrestle through your doubt. And then there's a third group of people who took off their coats, who waved palm branches, who sang in unison, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I believe with all that I am. You're in. You're convinced. Christ has changed your life. And my encouragement for you would be to grow in your love for God, to worship him for all that, with all that you are, and help the people in your life that don't know Jesus meet Jesus. Be unafraid and unashamed of your faith at your workplace, in your home, at your school. Be a light in a dark place. Bring the message of hope. Be a voice of hope in our world. Live in such a way that Jesus, the King who came and who is also promises that He's coming back, will help us build something right here and right now that's eternal. Here's the question today. Is Jesus your King? Is he your king? Is he ruler over your life? Is he leader? And is he savior? Is he forgiver of your sins? Is he someone that climbed up on that cross and he died for you so that all your sins could be forgiven, past, present, and future? Because that's available for you today. You see, the most important question is this question, is Jesus your king? The king has come. He came that day, that first Sunday, in the Passion Week, 
in those first hours of that 168 hours that would lead up to a cross that would eventually lead to a resurrection. And he promises that he's coming back. May we be found faithful. And may we live with the assurance of knowing who he is. And may we live passionate lives that reflect his heart toward the world. A life full of humility. A, a life that weeps for, for its world. And a life that's willing to go into the world and get dirty and to, to share the good news that the king has come. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for today. Thank you for the humility of coming. Thank you for emptying yourself, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, that you would put on flesh, that you would become obedient, eventually even obedient to death, death on a cross. And God, today, for so many of us, we're all in one of those three categories. Either we're just not sure, we don't believe, or we believe that with all that we are. God, may this series galvanize our, our faith in you. May it, may it spark us and spur us on to further discussions and further questions and, and, and to move through our doubts, to really discern who you are and what you came to do. God, we celebrate you for who you are. We thank you, God, for your willingness to come, to not be afraid, but to go right into Jerusalem, knowing where it would lead you, and that you would establish not an earthly kingdom, but an eternal kingdom and that you would call people to yourself, that we would be the people that you long for us to be, that we would become the church and the churches that you long for us to be. And may your church, this church and your church, be the hope of the world. And God, may you begin to put inside us a burning desire to live for you with all that we are. God, thank you so much for this, this, this series and what it's going to look like and to be able to look at just key events along the way in this week. And God, may you, may you give us eyes to see the things that you want us to see. And may you speak to us individually as we look at our lives and as we look at the life of Christ. God, may you have your way in and through our time. God, we worship you. We celebrate you for who you are. And God, may you be king and leader and ruler of our lives today. We love you and we give all of this to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.